Good morning, everybody. I want to say a special welcome to our extraordinary large online community this morning. As you sit there in your pajamas with your hot chocolate, joining us for worship, we're here in the flesh, reaching out to you so that we can be one united community. And we are in the midst of a, a year-long journey together, not just a weekly kind of series of messages, but a time where we might go on a quest together. And so we hope that you've gotten a copy of your Quest Bible. It is not too late to start reading. It is not too late to find a friend to read with or to reflect with. It's not too late to show up on a Thursday uh, for our lunch and learn and to bring and ask really difficult questions. And we hope that this, this stokes the fire of curiosity and a hunger for God. Because our dream this year is to have a Bible in every hand and God's story in every heart. And that we can do that together as one family of faith. And I really encourage you to, to make sure you've gotten a hold of, whether it's online or in person, one of these reading guides. And I think this is a great thing to just share with, uh, with somebody else, is to say, hey, this is what our church is doing, and we'd love for you to consider you know, joining me and joining us on, on this journey. And, it, and you'll notice that as I share with you kind of the path, that we've broken each month's readings down into kind of different sections. And in the month of January, we are talking about the theme of promise. The, the Old Testament word for this is covenant. And what we're going to get to experience as we go through the book of Genesis is we are going to get to see a series of the promises of God. And today's passage is going to make that abundantly clear. But first, I need to tell you a story. I didn't go to college thinking I would be a pastor. Believe it or not, I went to college as an engineering student. I became an engineering student because when I look back on my high school days and early days of college, um, I really wasn't all that great at the English and the history and all of those courses. I didn't take any religion classes. I started out with the physics, and I started out with engineering analysis and design. I started out with calculus. But I wasn't quite all in on the engineering thing. I was at a liberal arts school, and when I got to my second semester, I felt like my first semester had been so heavy in the sciences and the maths. I, I was wondering, is there more for me to study here, and am I about to commit to a major in my sophomore year without really having explored? So I worked with my advisor, and I said, I, I understand there's not a lot of wiggle room, but I need to take an elective. And he helped me to work out that, yeah, you know, this is a pretty set path, but if you want, you could take the mechanics class later, and you could take something else. That's exactly what I did. Out of about 140 students who were engineering majors at my liberal arts school, I was the only one who was not in the mechanics class. Everybody else was taking all of the same courses, and I over-communicated. It's really going to be okay for me to not take mechanics, because everybody else is going to be taking mechanics. You're telling me that when I, when I take tests for all of these other classes, that it's going to be okay that I don't understand mechanics, because I've never had a class in that, and I don't understand it. And they're like, you're going to be fine. Don't worry. So I go through the semester. 
And I'm in my engineering analysis and design final exam. And there are four questions on that final exam. Two of those questions start with the same preamble. As you know from your mechanics course. I'm sitting there taking this test. I am sweating bullets. I have no idea what's going on with this exam. This is the hardest test I have ever taken, and I am fuming because I vetted this thing. I had talked about it was going to be okay for me to take the analysis and design class, but not take the mechanics class. And I know I am going to fail this test, but I've got my blue book, and I am filling it out. Course was taught by two professors, one who had been there since they pulled Moses out of the bulrushes in Exodus 3, and a new professor, and they had co-taught it. And in front of the whole class, kid you not, the young professor, because the older professor was the one who had done the exam, the younger professor walks in front of all 140 of us sitting in the room, filling out our little blue books, walks in, walks up to the professor in front of us during the exam, throws the exam down and says, this is the most ridiculous test I have ever seen in my life. I'm filling out my little blue book and I'm going. <laughs> and then of course the old professor turns around and I'm putting my head back down and I'm writing away. Apparently that test was not just hard for me. I'm pretty sure if my memory serves me correctly, I got a 43 on that test after the curve that was a B. It was the hardest academic test that I had ever faced. But as you might imagine, it's not the hardest test that I've ever faced in my life. That there have been other trials, there have been other challenges, there have been other temptations, there have been other quandaries that have been even harder and sometimes I've passed, and sometimes I've failed. And what you're about to see in Scripture is Abraham facing his hardest test. Genesis chapter 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. And then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. I don't know if you remember the backstory, but God promises Abraham that his descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. This is funny to Abraham and Sarah because they are advanced in age. It seems like their time has passed. There are times when Abraham believes this promise, there are times when he doesn't. Like the time when his wife, growing impatient, says, you should probably take Hagar as your wife and start a family that way. And so there have been times throughout Abraham's life that even though God has said this, he disbelieved it and he believed it, depended on the day. 
And then after a long period of time, God makes good on that promise. And in her advanced age, Sarah becomes pregnant. And through a miraculous birth, they have Isaac. God says that through him, your seed shall be all over the earth. And now God says, I want you to take your son, your only son, whom you love, and you're going to sacrifice him. The first question on the test for Abraham is this one. What do you love the most? I mean, there's no question that Abraham loves Isaac. There's no question that he's the apple of his eye and that all of his hopes and his dreams are concentrated on him. And what Abraham is about to discover is whether or not he loves what God has given him more than he loves God himself. And so he faces this test. I have a friend who's a pastor who said that he watched over the decades families ruin themselves because they worship their children and live through their children instead of offering their children to God. And I'm here to tell you that in Genesis chapter 2, you are posed with a choice. You're supposed to love your children, but you never love them more than you love God. If you make your child the center of your family, your family will crater around the hopes and the dreams and the expectations of that act of worship. And your children or your grandchildren cannot sustain being the center of your worship. Only God can do that. St. Augustine referred to sin as a disordered heart and referred to a well-lived life as a well-ordered heart. Of course you love your family. But what do you love the most? This is the first test that Abraham will face. The second test will come this way. Let's start in verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place that God had told him about. And on the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. And he said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. You know, the strangest part of this story to me is that God tells Abraham to do this and Abraham doesn't protest. Did you notice that? He starts to go through the process. If God had told me to do this, I would have begun to complain, plead, whine, to do anything to get out of it. And yet Abraham doesn't. I don't believe the fundamental difference is that I'm a better person than Abraham. I think the fundamental difference is what you need to know is that at the time of the writing of this passage, sacrificing your firstborn child was not out of the ordinary. 
In other words, what God asked Abraham to do in the context of that day and age was not something that, that was unheard of in that culture. And so this, this story grates on our nerves the, the minutes that we hear it. We think this test is unfair. We think this test is ridiculous, and rightly so, but that's only because we're on the other side of this test. Because the second exam question that Abraham has to face is this, do you worship God only on your terms? Do you worship God only if you get to determine the plan by which you worship? I have numerous conversations in my office with people, and one of the phrases that repeats over and over again is this phrase, I can't believe in a God who blank. And that's their line for them. In other words, they worship the God that they want and not the God who is. And one of the things that Abraham shows us in this passage as shocking as it is, is that God is God and that we are not. And so if the first question is about what the priorities of our love are, the second question is about the priorities of our worship, our values. And does God determine those or do we do that? And then there's a third question, and it comes starting in verse 6. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac. He himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. How heartbreaking is this part of the story where little young Isaac is confused because he's been a part of worship before, a part of the animal sacrifice before, and he sees the wood, and he sees all the other things that they need, and the knife, and he's even carrying all of that, and he asks his dad, where, where is the lamb? Isaac is confused. Abraham is confused. I read this story. I'm confused as your pastor. And yet the third question is this. Do you still follow when you don't understand? Do you still obey when you don't understand? I had a friend who was in seminary, who was a different tradition. I come from the Reformed Presbyterian tradition, and as you probably know, we're the eggheads of the Christian family. We're the nerds of the Christian family. We're the people who study the most in the Christian family by historical standards. And on my hall was a young man who was of the Eastern Orthodox tradition. And man, I'd get in a theology class with a group of students, and we'd come back to our dorm room, and we'd be talking about these things that 
we, that we can't quite fit together in our neat categories. And there he would be in his Eastern Orthodox robe and he would smile and he would say, oh, if you had a little more mystery in your tradition, you might live a happier life. Because he was comfortable worshiping where he didn't understand. And I think I have to figure it out in order to worship. I think it has to make sense. And I'll never forget a late night conversation with him where he said to me once, Richard, I often wonder if you worship your understanding of God more than you worship God. And I don't think that that's just been true for me. Do you worship your understanding of God? Your frame of reference? Or do you worship God? And then the test continues in verse 9. When they reached the place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. And he bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and he took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. As we go through the Bible together, anytime you get to a moment where God repeats a name, Abraham, Abraham, Moses, Moses, Samuel, Samuel, Martha, Martha, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Anytime you get to the repeating of the name, you ought to circle that story and say there is something here that I'm supposed to sit up and pay attention to. God calls Abraham by name. He presents himself and says, here I am. God gives the prohibition that he is not supposed to harm his son. Exam question number four. Do you trust God to provide for you? Or will you take matters into your own hands? Do you trust God to provide for you? This is what the crux of faith is. Whether or not God will provide for you and for me, can you rely on him? Can you count on him? And do you do so? One of my favorite strange details of this story that you may have missed is that when Abraham and Isaac leave the servants and they are about to go away, Abraham has this strange little throwaway line where he says, we're going to go over there to worship and we 
will come back. Did you notice that he said we? Abraham is being obedient, but he has every confidence that God is going to provide the lamb. Let's finish the story. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. And he went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place, the Lord will what? Provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Here is the most fascinating, mysterious part of this passage. It starts out by saying, and God tested Abraham. But I really think that Abraham's not the only one being tested. That God is the one who is also being tested. And the test is, will you provide for them? Will you provide for them? Will you provide for them? The point of the story is not so much Abraham's willingness to offer his son. The point of the story in history is that he doesn't have to. Do you see that? There's been plenty of people in history who have been willing to be faithful. The question is, will God be faithful to you? First time I went to Israel, we'd done some time out in the different parts of the country, which is about the same size as New Jersey, but has a very different history. And we finally come into Jerusalem and we find our way to this place, which is known as the Temple Mount, There you see the Dome of the Rock, which is a sacred site in the history of Islam, which is where the location of the original temple and the second temple would have been. I have a doctorate. I have a master's degree. And our tour guide says, this is Mount Zion the mountain of David. And she says, but if you go back in history, it is also Mount Moriah. It is the Mount of Abraham. And a light bulb goes above my head that I cannot believe that no one taught me. Did you know that geographically speaking, that Mount Moriah and Mount Zion are the same place? That in other words, in the very place thousands of years before Jesus where Abraham was willing to offer his son and God provides the sacrifice, did you know that geographically speaking that that is the exact same place and location where Jesus dies on the cross? Because I didn't know that. Somehow those dots did not connect that through the thousands of years in the same location, God provided for the sacrifice for Abraham and then God provided the sacrifice for us. Do you see that? Do you see the seeds of the gospel all the way back in the beginning in the Genesis account? 
That it is at this point that God makes a decision of what that he is going to do. As Paul says in the book of Romans, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is to be against us? That he who did not withhold his own son, will he not also with us give us everything else? The point of the story is not Abraham's willingness to obey. The point of the story is that God will provide a sacrifice. This is Pete and Mara and their family. They're from Illinois. And one spring break, they were so excited to break out of the wintry mess of the Midwest and found their way down to the panhandle near Destin, Florida. I mean, they barely got their tires pulled up to the curb of parking near their place when the kids from their family and the other families that were a part of their spring break vacation poured out of the car and the kids and the warmth couldn't wait to just go tumble into the water, which they did. But it was a double red flag day and the currents were really strong. And they were immediately overwhelmed by the waters. Pete went in and he saved his three children. And he saved a friend's child. But in the process, he lost his own life. The story happened last year And whenever I read of accounts of people who are willing to lay down their own life, I don't know about you, but they move me deep inside. And the reason is, is because every story of sacrificial love and self-sacrifice points to what God has done for us in Genesis chapter 22 and at the end of our Gospels. That he will provide the sacrifice. And that the wind and the waves and the currents, which are too strong for you to bear, that he will rescue you, even at the cost of his own life. And so, my friends, this is the hardest test that Abraham ever faced. I also think it was the hardest test that God ever faced. What was he going to do in the face of the brokenness of our sinful world? He will provide. He will provide. And because of that, we can trust him. Because of that, we can worship him even when we don't understand. Because of that, we will follow him on his terms and not ours. And because of that, we love him above all other things.
That's what it's like to have a well-ordered heart. And so let us pray. We thank you, God, for the glimpses that we have in people like Pete Rosengren. Every example of a sacrifice that points us to the extent of your love and your willingness to lay down your life and to provide the sacrifice for us. Thank you, God, that we don't have to provide the sacrifice, but that you are willing to do so and that you will be in the midst of our lives, our Savior. Lord, in the tests of this life, help us to be faithful. Tests of love and of worship and discipleship and of trust. Help us to enter into the mystery of even difficult and hard and scary stories like this so that we may know of the extent of the liberty and the grace that you have given to us. And because of what you have done for us, we find freedom on the other side. And now we have the courage to lift up every voice and unite our lives in singing together.